This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. Today's episode is part two of my interview with Susan Douglas, doctoral candidate in world history from George Mason University, uh, who has a long and impressive career in education, conducting workshops, and writing numerous publications, including the Indian Ocean and World History website at indianoceanhistory.org, and impressive resources for teachers and students on Indian Ocean trade. Here's part two. So we've mentioned a few times that the the sort of model for trading in the Indian Ocean and on into Southeast and, and East Asia, really, there really was a game change when uh, the Europeans arrived on the scene, which happened famously at the end of, of the 15th century. Can you talk a little more about what that entailed and what, what kind of changes took place? Well, I think first there's a necessity to talk about what didn't take place. Um, First of all, the Portuguese and their other European rivals didn't bring the Indian Ocean trade into being, nor at the beginning of their presence there did they sort of massively up the volume of trade if for no other reason than that they didn't have a whole lot to bring into the trade uh, that was going on in the Indian Ocean at the time. They didn't have spices, they didn't have silk, they didn't have, you know, they had wool, they had a few other things that came from Europe. Um, But, of course, what attracted them and their royal sponsors were the luxury goods that were there in the Indian Ocean. So, um, A, they didn't bring the trade into being, and B, the second important point is that the Indian networks, ocean networks didn't change, collapse, or, to put it in a funny way, roll over and play dead with the arrival of Vasco da Gama and, and his, his successors in the Indian Ocean. Rather, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, and later English and other merchants joined the direct trade for the first time and had to adjust themselves to the situation. So English traders even relied upon local capital at times to finance their trade. It was difficult, dangerous, distant, and daunting to be a factor that is an agent of one of these trading companies in a faraway land. Many of them died. Um, many of them went broke. <laughs> you know, Many of them um, got into all sorts of other trouble. But Over time, um, you can say that there was an important change in the terms of trade and there were changes in um, the effect of the globalization of trade. In other words, you know, the earth had been circumnavigated and now uh, various goods that were available through mining and, and colonization of the new world became available and changed things in the Indian Ocean environment. Okay, so... As you mentioned, these are things that didn't happen. What would you say were the more profound changes that did take place? Well, as I mentioned before, the presence of wealth and and power as a result of European discovery of the Americas um, changed some of the items that were available there and changed the terms of trade in terms of especially of the way that goods could be paid for by European merchants. 
And uh, so over time, the accumulation of capital, in large part from the colonies that were producing gold and silver in the New World, in the hands of European trading companies, began to change the terms of trade by infusing a lot of precious metal into the trade that perhaps hadn't been a major factor. Barter and, and, and other types of exchange were probably more important before. So the trading companies were chartered, they possessed military power, they minted coins and issued paper, and monopolized trade for the mother country or the country that was chartering them. So this process followed by European entrenchment and colonization took centuries to alter the balance in favor of European merchants and political power. But um, you could say in the meantime, another important thing happened and that was that um, the Europeans kind of began to do an apprenticeship in terms of the styles of things that were in demand in Europe, in terms of the certain commodities, um, learning how these things were grown, learning how the textiles were produced, that, for example, cotton prints, um, how were these dyes produced that didn't run, that you could print on cotton and have the colors not run together, um, the styles and designs of floral designs that go back millennia. Um, one of the things that Europeans started to do was what we today when we talk about developing countries called import substitution. So they began to imitate some of these things and to, um, to adopt the, um, the techniques in manufacturing these things or to find, you know, eventually in industrialization to find ways to, to do them, you know, with uh, sort of in mechanized ways. So what you have there are um, crafts in the textile, ceramic, and other areas where Europeans served these apprenticeship to artisans in the regions um, and by way of import substitution and sometimes harsh penalties against the entry of imports in Europe, industrialization transformed those crafts into mechanically produced goods, mass produced more cheaply, and sold in competition with artisan produced goods. By then, the mid-19th century um, military might had entrenched colonial powers, mainly the British, Dutch, and French, on the entire route to, Indi to the Indian Ocean and within it. But as these goods, such as ceramics and textiles, they were two of the major ones, and of course spices as a commodity, uh, became very popular in Europe, um, the demand increased exponentially for these goods, and, and then the merchants in Europe were trying to, um, to find ways to imitate them so as to have cheaper versions and, and versions that were not just for the elites but then for, uh, for, for middle classes and others. Um, one other point that I might mention is in terms of the changes in goods that resulted from the globalization of trade were that when we often teach about the Colombian exchange, we talk about what came to Europe from... Uh, from the New World in terms of um, tomatoes and peppers and various things of that nature. And we sometimes teach also about things which came to the Americas, such as animals and so on, and grains. But um, we should also remember that because these trade routes in the Indian Ocean were so well established, the flow of Colombian exchange goods from the New World was quite rapid in getting across those routes into places like China. 
so that the the arrival of the potato in China already within a hundred years was um, enhancing nutrition there and causing you know some population growth. Um, you have another famous example where the um, the Mughal emperor apparently ate and had his court paint a turkey before the first Thanksgiving in in the Americas. Wow, <laughs> exactly. And this is one of the few things you could actually document that meal because he had the painter paint this turkey before it went to the to the to the cooks in the in the kitchen and of course a lot of the uh the 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 silver that was was that was being circulated in the indian ocean was coming out of the new world it was it was being mined by the spanish and taken directly to china across the pacific if i'm not mistaken exactly and some of it of course also came in the other direction but that is a very important thing that world historians have recently discovered um one of the more famous uh, you know quips by an economist uh, ag frank is that the Europeans bought a ticket on the Asian train with your with uh, American silver. <laughs> it kind of succinctly puts it in 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 one statement. Uh, absolutely. So, with all of this trade and the entry of the Europeans onto the scene, were there any other developments? So, we've talked about social, we've talked about economic, um, but a lot of times uh, this sort of trade also led to technological. Uh, advances, sometimes even inadvertent ones. Uh, do we see that here as well? Well, you definitely do. And one of the things that took place while the world was still in the age of sail was, of course, the advancement of, of ships for use in long-distance uh, travel across the oceans, across the open oceans. And for when you look at the change in the routes, of course, we have the circumnavigation of Africa is one of the main routes that is very obvious for changing. But um, with the discovery of uh, the southern uh, Indian Ocean routes. These are called the Roaring Forties and the Screaming Sixties and so on. These are the, the lower degrees of latitude, or the higher rather degrees of latitude toward the South Pole, where there were extremely strong winds, but where a ship could kind of hitch a ride on those routes and find themselves, you know, blown all the way almost to Australia, where they would then make a sharp left turn and go up to Java, unless they crashed into the coast, which somebody did and discovered inadvertently <laughs> discovered Australia. But um, but these routes were dependent upon things like the um, the longitudinal clock that could be used uh, to plot longitude at sea. Um, these are all entries that are there on the site for further explanation. But uh, you have wonderful paintings of these uh, fleets of ships you know, sailing, diving, crashing into the winds, you know, there and being blown across very quickly across these southern routes. Uh, so when you when you compare the routes from the earlier periods and ones that are still used throughout, all the way from ancient times through to, to today, uh, the ones that hug sort of the northern rim of the Indian Ocean, now you have these others being used. And then, of course, uh, with, with the end of the age of sail and the beginning of steam travel, uh, which was still kind of a mixed affair at the very beginning of steam travel, um, they would were able to use those routes and they became then independent of the winds, or at least somewhat independent of the winds. Um, and yet those routes had been opened up and, and have still been frequent because they, uh, they enable uh, a quicker sail across these vast distances. So um, one of the other questions that, that pops up is the sort of human factor in all of this. Um, Granted, it's been probably the better part of a decade since I was in East Africa, but there there was a large resident uh, South Asian population there, um, a lot of whom were affiliated with the merchant classes. Is that something that we see uh, as the result of, of European colonialism, or is that something that's sort of always been? 
I think the answer is both. Um, you had in, in very early trade, even in pre-Islamic times, you had uh, you had Yemenis traveling across, uh, Southern Arabians, that is to say, traveling across the monsoon routes and taking up residence in areas of the coast where they did business. Uh, you had um, the famous Geniza documents that give evidence of Jewish trading families um, moving around in these areas. The famous book, by uh, Amitav Ghosh in an antique land uh, talking about the family relations that testified to these to these migrations and these you know temporary migrations and more permanent migrations around the area uh, as I said before even Islam you had Persian families settling on the East African coast uh, you have evidence of, of Hindus migrating into Southeast Asia and carrying Hinduism and, and all sorts of cultural and artistic influences there this all really steps up with with colonialism when um, colonial powers having multiple uh, colonies were able to sort of ship people around. And the most famous example is the one you mentioned of the of the coolies who were recruited from agricultural peoples uh, in India and were brought to do projects and so on into East Africa and South Africa. Indeed, Gandhi is among the, uh, the people who migrated uh, through British colonialism, uh, where he got his start in South Africa. Um, in addition to that, there have been a number of studies lately that are interesting to go into uh, on the prevalence of different types of slavery. Ibn Battuta back in the 14th century again mentioned the um, incredibly different uh, ethnic groups that crewed the various ships, including Chinese ships would have had multiple uh, ethnicities working as their crews. Um, this continues all the way through into the period whether those crews were impressed as slaves in part from one place or another. Um, you had people landing on islands uh, and in the colonial period again plantations are set up, famous vanilla plantations set up on Réunion for example by the French where vanilla from the um, New World began to be grown in the Indian Ocean for, uh, as a commodity. So you have all kinds of motion, and um, certainly it has continued into the modern period, but it certainly is of very long duration. So as you mentioned, this trade's been going on for 90,000 years. What would you say are the lasting legacies of the Indian Ocean trade that we can still see? I think one of them that struck me in doing the research for this project, which involved, you know, over 500 entries and all kinds of topics from the first golf ball to... Um, you know, the kind of materials that were used to sheathe transatlantic submarine cables and things like that. Um, the lasting legacy or a lasting legacy of the tropical Indian Ocean is the vast number of goods, products, and, and styles that have informed global taste today. Uh, when you think of rubber, when you think of silk, when you think of uh, any number, dyes of all kinds, these were the products that in their natural form were very much desirable and which have been synthesized through chemistry into sort of imitations of their natural products that are very widely used today. So you can see a direct line to the discovery of these, uh, of these commodities, many of them, you know, as I said, natural items from this tropical paradise, so to speak, this huge, vast area, um, that have come into global trade, have become commodities, and have been made into synthetics nowadays. So I think that's a striking thing of the legacy of this ocean. And it's also important to remember that um, the trade has not ceased at all. It is a very active region today. Uh, it's one to which manufacturing has returned. And so some of the uh, textile commodities that were first 
attractive to global trade are now um, being manufactured there, maybe under different auspices, under different terms of trade, like T-shirts and athletic goods and so on. But we shouldn't forget that those styles and those um, sort of perennial favorites in terms of colors and, and using uh, plant designs and, and even the famous animal prints that you're seeing everywhere now come from that sort of tropical legacy of, of what is exotic and what is, what is pleasing to the eye and, and, and so on. So I think that um, that it's important to continue to look at the region and not just focus on it as as many curricula and teachers do, um, just in the medieval period. Like this is the time when we do the Indian Ocean. I think looking at it in that continuity from the very most ancient times of early human migration all the way to globalization is is a very interesting exercise in in seeing how things change and how things um, at the same time remain. Excellent. And of course, I would highly encourage anyone who's listening uh, who has an interest in this to to check out the IndianOceanHistory.org website, um, because it really is uh, an impressive resource with uh, over 500 primary documents that illustrate all aspects of the Indian Ocean trade from pre-antiquity through to the present. Susan, it has been wonderful having you on 15-Minute History, and I'd like to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me, too. All right. We'll see you next time. Don't forget, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.